Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is a glorious chapter of Scripture. It's in the beginning of a glorious sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are privileged to hear from him again as we continue to make our way through it. This morning, considering verses 17 through 20. 17 through 20. As always, I want to encourage you, if you would care to take notes, there is a sermon notes section here in the bulletin for the morning and evening sermons, and so I would encourage you, uh, this text is few in verses, but it is rich and meaty in content, and so uh, use that as you would to help you in your continued study and learning and meditation upon the very Word of God. Well, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, this is the very Word of God written for you and for me today. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Indeed, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins, part of his work to do so was to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus not only fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in every way, but remember the grounds that he gave John the Baptist for him to baptize Jesus in Matthew 3.15. He said, it was fitting to do so to fulfill all righteousness. And in being the Messiah born under the law, Jesus had to submit to all that God required of his people. And that baptism proclaimed that he had come to be our substitute, that he would receive the divine judgment that was rightfully ours upon himself. The act of obedience of Christ is in view here, beloved, as he, he lived to do what we cannot. He lived to fulfill the law for us. And as we think more about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as, as we consider the ethics of the kingdom that Jesus has preached so far, he hasn't said anything directly about life and the Mosaic law yet. And that quite possibly may have been in the minds of 
some of his mountainside disciples as they listened to him. For they lived life day in and day out, regulated by the law. It was clear in their culture. It was on their minds. And the fruit of living according to it was hopefully active in their lives every day. In many ways, the words of the opening verses of Psalm 1 were fresh to them. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the, in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But beloved, Jesus knew what they didn't. He knew that the law can tell us how to live, but it can't empower us or enable us to live. And so it was important for Jesus to teach his mountainside disciples and us today what the purpose of his advent and life was in relation to the law, as well as more about the role of the law in the life of the Christian. And in doing so, at this point in his sermon, Jesus wanted to prevent his disciples from misunderstanding his teaching that would soon follow. For he would correct the errant interpretation and application of the Pharisees, which we'll begin considering next week, Lord willing. And so as we consider Jesus' words here, let's do so under three headings. First, Jesus didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 17. Secondly, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled, verse 18. And the least and the great in the kingdom of heaven, verses 19 and 20, and Christ's words regarding them. Well, as we look at verse 17 here and begin, we see that Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, as Jesus began his teaching and preaching ministry, he knew that some may think that he had low regard for the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, and therefore that his teaching aimed at doing away with them. Keep in mind that the men Jesus preached to on that mountainside and many of the people that followed him up to that point sought to obey the law and thought highly of the interpretation of the Pharisees. And they sought to live accordingly. Further, they believed the Pharisaic traditions to be the law itself. And therefore, to correct them would be in violation of God's word. They would think, clearly, he came to destroy. Thus, another important reason for Jesus' words here in preparation. Indeed, the truth is that Jesus held the Old Testament in the highest regard. And why? We, we know this to be true, as he said it is the authoritative word of God. The scripture cannot be broken, he said in John 10, 35. This is his very word. Also, Jesus has frequently quoted Scripture thus far, hasn't he? And, and will continue to do so. 
And know that when Jesus refers to the law or the prophets here in verse 17, he is referring to the whole Old Testament. And the Old Testament scriptures, we know, contain both the Mosaic law and rich and many prophecies, which Jesus speaks to in verse 17. Now, the Old Testament law can be divided into three general categories. Some of you may be familiar with them, some of you not. Moral, ceremonial, and civil. The moral law is the Ten Commandments. We just recited those commandments this morning in our reading of the law. They contain what? They contain two books. Book one, our duties to God. Book two, our duties to our fellow man. The ceremonial law contained the Mosaic laws regarding Israel's worship of God and their ritual holiness as a people set apart unto God. As our confession of faith states in chapter 19, uh, section 3, this law contained, quote, several typical ordinances, and in typical ordinances, the confession is referring to ordinances that were types and shadows, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. And thirdly, the civil law was also given to Israel to set them apart as the people of God from the rest of the nations. It was also given to govern and guide them in the ways of godliness with one another. And so, in regards to the word of the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament is full and rich with their prophecy foretelling what? The character, the coming, and the work of the Messiah. The Messiah and King had come. We, we see Jesus declaring this. We, we've seen this big message already thus far in Matthew as he speaks of king and kingdom. The Messiah, the king, had come, and he had come as the mediator of the new covenant. And so when Jesus says that he didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, what does he mean? And how does he do so? In our study of Matthew alone, Thus far, we have been blessed to see confirmation time and again of the prophecy that Christ's coming and action fulfilled over and over again, blessing after blessing from the beginning of chapter one till now. We've seen that. And speaking about the law, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson describes it well. He said, Jesus came to fill full the law. He does this in himself. You look at Jesus and you see that is the life to which the law of God pointed. Beloved, in fulfilling the law, Jesus doesn't alter, replace, or nullify the former commands. What he does is fill up and establish the law's true and full intent, showing the goal that they lead to which is Christ himself. This was completely missed and, and misguided by the Pharisees. And again, it, it makes 
perfect sense. We, we see why Jesus says this here because of what he's going to say next. Morally and fulfilling the law, Jesus obeyed where we haven't. And he paid in full the penalty of our breaking God's law, that we would be reconciled to God and have restored full communion with him. He fulfilled the moral commands of God for us, beloved. And that moral law that shows us our sin restrains evil and points us to Christ, guiding us in the ways of righteousness, remains binding on all Christians everywhere. And further, Jesus also fulfills the rest of the law. And considering that, how should we understand the application of this for Christians biblically today? Well, the Old Testament ceremonial and dietary laws have been abrogated in the New Testament, our confession teaches us. And they've been done so in Christ and his work on the cross. As the Apostle Paul taught the church, and particularly the Gentiles in the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, he said, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements note that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So hear this wonderful connection of the fulfillment that Christ made and accomplished here and what that means and how that applies to us. I also encourage you to consider Ephesians chapter 2 verses 15 and 16, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 10, Acts chapter 10 verses 9 through 16, and Acts 11, 2 through 10 in your study of this truth. Now, as you consider and you think about abrogation, some of you may be thinking, well, hang on, pastor, you said that word, and okay, but I have no clue as to what that really means and, or how I should consider it then today. Know that abrogation, when we consider abrogation, know that it doesn't mean entire cancellation. Think about it this way. As full atonement couldn't be made through the blood of bulls and goats, Jesus fulfills the intent of the sacrifices in the law with his once-for-all perfect sacrifice of himself. We see this in Hebrews 10. And so we don't offer animals today but rather the sacrifice of praise to God as, as we approach Him through the shed blood of Christ. That's an example of what that looks like for us. Now, how should we consider the application of the civil laws? 
This is a question that has been and continues to be the subject of much debate in the church today. Our Confession of Faith states in chapter 19, section 4, that the civil laws are, quote, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Now, though some focus on the confession's words that these laws were for the body politic or the nation of Israel and and aren't obliging for any other now, they often neglect to study, grasp, and seek to faithfully apply the last clause. Further than the general equity thereof may require. This clause is important, beloved. It speaks to the application of the law today. And how did the divines come to this conclusion from Scripture? Well, I'll give you a couple of things to think about. There's much that we could study on this, but briefly here this morning. Consider Genesis 49, verse 10. Genesis 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Notice, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Pointing to Christ. The fulfillment of this is the universal messianic reign of Christ. Now, cross-reference this in Genesis 49 with Peter's words in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 15, where he says this, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or note in verse 14, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for what? The punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who are doing good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, considering the application of this general equity principle, my friends, should the civil law continue to apply today? Yes, according to the principles therein, in the civil sphere. But by what standard? The Word of God. And it has to be the Word of God. Why? For God defines what is good and praiseworthy. We see this here in 1 Peter 2. He also defines what's evil and to be punished. And He does this only in His Word and charges the governors, notice, the civil magistrate, to punish and to praise accordingly. Therefore, it is the only standard from which general equity can be determined and applied. Much wisdom needs to be in such determination and application, but this is the standard. But finally, beloved, in regards to Christ fulfilling the law, Jesus also fulfills the law through the power and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. Remember Paul's words to the saints in Rome in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we see this great work of the Spirit. As Christ fulfills the law, he also does does so through the work and the power of the Spirit in the hearts and lives of his people. In Matthew 5, notice that Jesus goes on further to support his statement about not destroying, but fulfilling. And he goes on to calm any concern by, by giving a promise regarding the authoritative word. Notice what he says in verse 18. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And again, beloved, similar to abrogation, you may be wondering, what is a jot and a tittle? We don't really use that in our English language. A jot and a tittle are the smallest pen strokes in the Hebrew script. Jesus here gives his disciples his word regarding his word. Divine inspiration was in place even in the smallest pen strokes in Scripture. And therefore, they could take it to the bank that Jesus would bring to completion all that he said to the smallest detail without fail. This is one of the most wonderful promises in all of Scripture, beloved. Praise the Lord. Not one jot, not one tittle would pass until the complete fulfillment comes in the full manifestation of Christ's kingdom in its consummation when he returns. He fulfills the Old Testament law and the prophets. And he's still fulfilling. Cover to cover. Old Testament, New Testament. All that is foretold. All that is promised. He has and will fulfill. And because this is true, His disciples needed to understand more about obedience in his kingdom and to heed his warnings about the teachers of disobedience who the people saw as great teachers of righteousness. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, now see three things here for a moment. See the contrast first of the teachers of the law of Israel versus Jesus Christ, the great teacher. But secondly, see the revealing of the identity of those who sin and then teach and lead others astray in sin versus the sinless teacher who obeys God's word and teaches others to be faithful in obedience as well. And finally, 
see the kingdom citizens who are to follow Christ's example and teach others to do the same as he calls us to do in the Great Commission. For great will be our reward in heaven. But then notice that Jesus says these things, and then he points to the bar that they needed to consider and evaluate themselves in light of in verse 20. Look there. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, beloved, when Jesus' disciples heard this, many of them may have thought, great, right? The Pharisees are so high and righteous. There's no way that I can be saved. There's there's no way that I can enter your kingdom because my righteousness can't even get close to exceeding theirs. Indeed, the scribes and the Pharisees were more zealous than others in keeping the law. Their righteousness, by their own merits, soared above the rest, even in their own estimation. And that's what everybody saw. And that's what the Pharisees wanted them to see. However, their keeping the law was only outward and external, and it was distorted by their added traditions. They were viewed as great when they truly were not. And further, contrary to the Pharisees' teaching, no one can earn their way and gain entrance into the kingdom through their own merits in imperfectly carrying out the deeds of the law. It can't happen. Their righteousness, like all sinners, is filthy rags. Keep in mind that as Jesus speaks of righteousness as a requirement for getting into heaven here, his statement isn't about earning our way into heaven. Rather, it's something far more glorious and beautiful. Christ's words reveal the function of righteousness and the law of God in the life of the Christian. By perfectly obeying God's law, beloved, Christ merited righteousness for those who trust in him. And those who trust in him are clothed with his righteousness, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. So, beloved, as Jesus continues to bring clarity to kingdom ethics here, as he does the same with kingdom entrance, See both things here. See the light that Jesus shines as he sets the stage for exposure and correction and guidance that's to come. Beloved Jesus, the great lawgiver, the creator of all things, fulfilling the law and the prophets is so wonderful to behold. It really is. It all points to him and his work. He gets all the glory. The Pharisees don't get it. Other sinners don't get it. You and I don't get it because we can't merit anything. But he merits everything. And as you have trusted in him in true faith, he freely gives you what he accomplished for you. 
You can't merit anything, but Jesus really has merited righteousness for you, and he has clothed you in it like a wonderful robe, like the wedding garments. You are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. Never doubt that. How does that impact you today? Do you doubt? Do you worry? Do you wonder? As was true for the mountain disciples, this should cause you to turn away from it and not follow those who teach otherwise. Jesus would confront the Pharisees, but this time was for his disciples to say, listen to me. As I prepare you for what you're about to hear, and I am going to guide you in a different way, the right way, the holy way, the way of righteousness, the straight and narrow way, this should drive you, it should drive me to worship and love and adore the Lord Jesus Christ more and more. But also as Jesus fulfills the law, know that his law, his commands remain. They are good and, and right and holy. And, and therefore, study their full intent in Christ and delight even more in them this morning, beloved. Walk in the paths of holiness and godliness today and in the days ahead and teach others to do the same. Parents, it's imperative that you do this with your children. But for each and every one of us, even if you don't have children, we need to teach others to do the same. We need to take the opportunities that the Lord gives us. And we need to share and proclaim Christ and impart such knowledge as he reveals himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. Great will be your reward, beloved, Know that this is the path of Christ's disciples and discipleship. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful word, and we pray for your spirits writing it in our hearts and minds and opening our eyes and our understanding it, giving us great joy as we see more of Jesus and his wonder, and his beauty, and his glory, and his faithfulness, his righteousness. Oh, we praise you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.